And so that has held on throughout the time. Our current chairperson is Christine Todd Whitman, former governor of New Jersey, Republican, former administrator of the EPA. And, and we're taking these issues on one at a time. And today's topic, of course, we think is pretty timely, battlefields of the future, the next generation of nuclear reactors. And I'm gonna have my moment to shine here and talk about that here in a minute, but the, the important person here is Congressman Connor Lamb. And I was just talking to the congressman, and uh, he's had an interesting year and a half. And congratulations on your election. You've had two, as I understand it, in the last year plus, and then another one coming up. The, this is the land of everlasting uh, elections, I'm sure. Uh, but we're, we're delighted that you're here. And I, and I will tell you, they, they tagged me hard to do the introduction, they said, because I'm a retired Marine, and you are a Marine. Active duty, well, IRR, but you've, you've just come off active duty. And I know you're a University of Pennsylvania graduate. I have a connection there. My sister got her PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. She now teaches at Pomona, uh, fabulous school. And, and the fact that number of committees that you're sitting on, I see the list here, Vice Chair of the House Committee on Veterans, Chair, Veterans Affairs. Um, you're Chair of the Energy Subcommittee on the House Committee of Science, Space, and Technology. Uh, so I, I mean, and you're working on Veterans Affairs as well, Vice Chair. So. Those are all very important committees and important to us here at ASP. Uh, we are not a lobbying organization per se, but we will go up the hill to the hill and talk policy. We won't endorse a candidate uh, or a party, but we will criticize or endorse a policy. And, and certainly we're concerned about energy independence and nuclear energy, which we are proponents of, as long as it's done in a safe and, and, and quiet way. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to the congressman and let you make your remarks and then you can go back up to the Holocaust on the Hill. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, sir, and thank you, Andrew, uh, for allowing me to be here. The real reason they invited a Western Pennsylvanian uh, on this morning of all mornings is that I was told you need some experience in preparing for winning sports championships. Um, <laughs> and that is something that we know a lot about in our part of the country. Um, it's a lot of fun winning. It's really good for morale and for the whole feeling of the city. So look forward to it. I hope it happens to you. Um, the important thing about Western Pennsylvania, and I, I've represented a large swath of it in the past uh, 18 months in two different districts. Thank you to our Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Um, oil was first discovered there by Edwin Drake in 1859. Um, our coal helped power the industrial machine uh, that fought in one World War I and World War II and th on throughout the 20th century. Um, in 1954, President Eisenhower waved the wand that broke ground on the first ever civilian commercial nuclear reactor in my current district in a place called Shippingport, Pennsylvania, uh, about 25 or 30 miles outside of Pittsburgh. Uh, and today it's the shale boom in western Pennsylvania in addition to one or two other places that is really uh, rewriting the American national security strategy and posture for the 21st century. So we feel pretty proud of our history of energy development and energy production in Western Pennsylvania, and we're looking forward to the 21st century and how we can contribute just like anybody else is. Uh, I think what the nuclear and shale developments have in common, as far as I can tell, is that they represent the best of what this federal government of ours can do uh, when it sets its mind to it which is to invest heavily in R&D, make some excellent choices, and deploy the resources at our disposal, both in the military and in our national lab system, and in doing so, break open new markets that American entrepreneurs can rush in and fill and create American jobs. Uh, the nuclear program is a perfect example of that. Admiral Rickover and President Eisenhower and everyone in between uh, invested heavily in doing it on the Navy side and on the commercial side and an entire new industry was born, a worldwide industry. And companies like Westinghouse, which are native to Western Pennsylvania, spent the rest of the 20th century uh, developing this technology and creating jobs and creating affordable clean energy all over the world. Uh, the same is now true with shale. Not everybody knows this, but a lot of the technologies behind shale development, whether hydraulic fracturing or horizontal drilling, uh, or even the seismic detection that goes into that technology now, Almost all of it was developed or significantly added to within our national lab system, much of it at the national lab in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, we're very proud of this. Uh, certainly entrepreneurs came in and took risks and took it further than the government could take it, but this was a new market created and expanded by our communal efforts uh, and the tax dollars that we all spend. Interestingly though, today, uh, it's the intersection of these two things, shale and nuclear, 
that is threatening the future of nuclear energy in Pennsylvania. So we get 40% of our power in Pennsylvania from nuclear power today. Uh, but we just lost the Three Mile Island nuclear plant. And the plant in my district, which is called Beaver Valley, it's the successor to the original shipping port plant, uh, is next on the list to be at risk of closing. Why is that? Um, well, there are a lot of complicated reasons to it. Obviously, the plants are old. But the number one reason is that uh, natural gas is extremely cheap in Pennsylvania because of the uh, shale development boom that we've had there. And so people can build gas plants and uh, get power even cheaper for the ratepayers. And so we're grappling with this question in our home state of what do we do to recognize the contribution that nuclear energy makes to a carbon-free uh, power sector in the United States. And it's a question we have to take seriously because in Pennsylvania, at least, it is 100% clear that if we lose Beaver Valley and we lose any of our other nuclear plants, they'll be replaced by natural gas and fossil fuel sources. We'll go back when we're trying to go forward on climate, and we don't want to allow that. So there are people uh, working today in Pennsylvania because of these choices that our government has made in the past, and we need the government to make similar choices going forward. Uh, just at the plant in my district alone that I mentioned, we have 1,000 people working every day. And across our state, that number is more like between 10 and 15,000 just at the plants alone. Many of these people are union members, and a pretty high percentage of them are veterans of the United States Navy as well. And their jobs should not be at risk. They have made an incredible contribution to the power sector and the economy of our state. And many of them are people working in middle-class jobs in parts of the state where we haven't had a lot of success replacing the middle-class jobs that left when steel and coal and other aspects of heavy industry uh, resigned. So uh, many people would find it ironic that two Marines, such as General Cheney and myself, have been called upon to defend these Navy veterans today and their jobs. But let me assure you that that's just the latest in a long history of the Marines doing the dirty work uh, that the Navy can't do for themselves. So we all know we need to look forward. And I think as part of the same history that we're talking about of the government breaking open these new markets for American entrepreneurs, uh, we all believe that we stand on the doorstep of a new era of nuclear energy if we choose to seize it. And that's with advanced, small, fast micro-nuclear reactors. Um, so I'm proud to be one of the original co-sponsors in the House of something called the Nuclear Energy Leadership Act, uh, which also is led in the Senate by Senators Manchin and Murkowski. And this is, a, this is an audacious bill. And I think if we get this right, we may look back in the future at this being another turning point like it was when Rickover and Eisenhower decided to take on nuclear energy for the first time. Uh, what our bill would do would authorize long-term power purchase agreements. So right now, we allow federal agencies to purchase and build uh, new energy projects for about 10 years of guaranteed uh, power purchasing. We would extend that to 40 years to make it even easier to build and develop a complicated technology like the future of nuclear. Uh, we would also set specific goals for our advanced nuclear reactor research. Uh, we would require the Secretary of Energy to establish a nuclear energy strategic plan. Um, we would do a lot of research on versatile reactor-based fast neutron sources, which is the science underlying some of these fact, uh, fast reactors. We would also advance the state of security for our nuclear fuels. Uh, and perhaps most importantly, we would establish a university nuclear leadership program to bring along the next generation of scientists to replace many of those who are starting to retire. Uh, we haven't done a great job with the nuclear pipeline in our country, and I think we could do a whole lot more. Uh, it's going to take people. It's going to take a guaranteed customer in the, in the form of the federal government. But again, I believe that's the role we've always played at our most successful, the federal government using its own market and buying and research power to establish this market and help it make the transition. Uh, on top of all of this, whether you're talking about life extension for current plants, whether you're talking about the AP1000 uh, that we're already selling abroad, or you're talking about these future technologies, I've heard estimates that we're looking at at least a $1 trillion export market when it comes to nuclear technology, which makes sense because there's still a billion people in the world today without electric power, at least reliably, and their governments are looking around the world and trying to figure out where they can get it, how they can get it. Uh, fast and at an affordable rate. And in many of these countries, they don't want to contribute to climate change any more than they have to. And what's happening today is Russia and China are filling those gaps. I think we owe it to all the Americans I talked about and all the Americans growing up today in those same places 
to seize those jobs and those opportunities for them. We have tens of thousands of additional people in the state of Pennsylvania who work in the nuclear supply chain. There's a company called Curtis Wright in my district uh, that employs members of the United Steelworkers and IBEW, uh, and they make both uh, turbines and rotors and big steel objects for Navy ships and their nuclear supplies, as well as domestic nuclear power plants. And they have so many Chinese customers, I went and toured there this summer, that they actually have tarps hung on their walls and ceiling preset in place so that they can cover up all the sensitive domestic military technology when the Chinese come in to look at the replacement parts for the AP-1000s they bought from us. So that's the, that's the world. China will buy this stuff from us and so will all these other countries if we do it better. Uh, I believe we can and that's the goal of our legislation. So I thank you for all the awareness you're bringing to this issue. I hope you'll reach out to my office and others who are involved in this topic area and help us move it along. Um, our door is always open. Thank you very much. So we'll, we're going to go ahead and get started uh, while she uh, is in transit here. And, and uh, when she comes, she'll come right up and, and, uh, and be a part of it. Um, but, but meanwhile, we're, we were so, so lucky and honored to have uh, Representative Connor Lamb come here and, and tell us and talk to us about uh, the work <coughs> she's doing, the work that, that's being done in Congress. And I think it is notable uh, that Nuclear power, advanced nuclear, is having a moment right now in, in Congress. There is bipartisan support for a lot of uh, a lot of things that are moving in the advanced nuclear space. In the um, you know, today's nuclear power, yesterday's nuclear power is not the same as, as tomorrow's nuclear power. Uh, things are changing. That's not to say that there's anything that, you know that, that these current generation is, is anything wrong. We want to do everything we can to keep the current generation going as long as we can because, as he said, uh, that is the largest part of our uh, zero carbon energy source uh, and losing that would, would be a, a, a real challenge. But the next generation of nuclear power is uh, quite different and quite interesting. So what, the, what we're here today to talk about is uh, nuclear power for, uh, for the, the military. Uh, as, as many of you know, uh, there has been a couple of uh, a couple of programs uh, up and running within the, the Department of Defense to look at uh, you know how how we could use these new next generation nuclear power for the military, how to how to increase our national security, our operational effectiveness in there. Um, and I'm going to just published this report here, and, and I think many of you have, have picked up copies of it. Um, you'll see it go out in the press release this afternoon, and uh, we're excited to, to, to push this out. Um, but I think, I think to kind of look at this, the way we're, we look at this, the way I see this, is energy is what you could call a force multiplier. It, it allows the military to be more effective. It allows the military to be more lethal and um, bring more power, literally, uh, to the fight. Um, you don't hear the, the term much in, uh, in this administration, but uh, you still see the, the effects. In the last administration, they had talked about this third offset strategy. And, and what an offset means uh, is a, both a, is the military taking advantage of both a technology uh, advance with a strategic shift. Uh, so it allows the military to cost-effectively balance against competition. And, and you know, when they, when they talk about this, uh, the first offset was in the 50s using advances in nuclear weapons to uh, offset against the conventional superiority of the Soviet military in, in Europe. The idea that we would never be able to st stop Soviet tanks, but with nuclear weapons, we could offset against that and deter it. The second offset uh, in this, this sort of context was uh, the computing, stealth, and precision weapons developed throughout the 1970s that allowed uh, the U.S. military to offset against, again, Soviet military you know, uh, dominance in manpower. You know, the idea that you could, if you could use less bombs uh, and be more, uh, more strategic and, and uh, more accurate, 
you could do a lot more damage. Uh, and, and, and of course, that offset kind of culminated in the, in the first Gulf War, and, and you know, you saw it almost looked like the, the video game that they would talk about. You know, you're knocked that against there. Uh, so the third offset, the, the idea is that technology advances in da data analytics, AI, autonomy, directed energy, hypersonics, biotech, uh, all of those would help offset against this new age of strategic competition with China and Russia. What I think was notable, though, and I, I talked about this a little bit when they first talked about this, but, but notable even more now, is that energy was not included in that conversation. And, and of course, energy is the thing that enables almost all of those, those other, uh, other things. You know, hypersonics, directed energy. Of course, you need a, a massive amount of directed energy. Um, autonomy, autonomous vehicles, a lot of those are, are electrical powered. Uh, you even see things like, uh, you know, the, the Army is now talking about using a all-electric brigade. So it, these things require vast amounts of power, and, vast, and largely it's vast amounts of electric power. And, uh, and so the thing is, though, is that the way the military generates that electricity on the battlefield and at installations is the same way it's, it's generated that energy for a long, long time. So uh, maybe we should be thinking about how to utilize advances in energy uh, to, to do this. And of course, we've seen over the last decade and a half, uh, you know, new advances in solar power, in batteries, and that sort of stuff on the battlefield. And that is very important. Uh, it gets fuel off the supply lines, off the supply chain. But when you talk about these, these massive amounts of power, really only nuclear can meet those energy needs. Energy dense, uh, <coughs> you know, doesn't have the, the long supply chain, the long supply lines. Uh, that uh, that you have with fossil fuels, with with oil, gas, diesel going up uh, into into battlefield areas. Um, so that's kind of what I talk about in the report. There, uh, there's a lot more in there. So I'd, I'd encourage you all to read it. Uh, but uh, I think it's important too to get a, a get some context from General Cheney, who who has thought a lot uh, about these issues based on his his time in the Marines and, and since. Uh, so, Steve, over to you. Uh, absolutely, Andrew. And maybe we can get a quick dialogue going here. Yeah. I, I love your, your comment that it, uh, power is a force multiplier. Uh, I'd call it more of an Achilles heel. Yeah. Because uh, without it, you're not going anywhere. When I was an artillery battalion executive officer, uh, we were out in the desert. Um, my number one concern wasn't the ammunition or where the enemy was. It, what's, where's the next gas stop? Uh, how was I going to get gas and the fuel to power our battalion so that we can get on the way. And without it, you're dead. Once you stop it, you're targeted and they're going to get you. So there's no doubt about it. Uh, power is essential to any battlefield environment. Uh, I, got, I got to take a side swipe at the Navy while I'm at it. The, uh, um, I heard the Congressman's comments. I have the Navy to, to thank for being a Marine because I couldn't, I couldn't make it to the Rickover interview, and, uh, which is what I wanted. I was a Marine engineer by degree. And it didn't, didn't quite qualify on the, on the grade point average side of the house. So I went, so I went into the Marines uh, and, and was happy for it, to be honest with you. But we have the Navy to thank for nuclear power today. And when people think nuclear power, they, they think Chernobyl and Three Mile Island, uh, Fukushima, when they ought to be thinking about the 60 or 70 nuclear reactors we've got underneath the water and that we have on our surface line ships that are nuclear powered. And the advantage that gives them unlike the disadvantage I had in my artillery battalion, is they can operate for 20 years without refueling. Yep. Yep. I mean, and, that, and as General Mattis said when he was the commanding general of the 1st Marine Division, get me off this tether of fossil fuels. Uh, the statistic we use is that there were over 1,000 soldiers, sailors, and airmen, Marines that were killed between Iraq and Afghanistan guarding fuel convoys, yep. um, which, is, which is incredible, to be honest with you. They had over 18,000 other casualties related to convoy uh, patrols. Um, so when you're carting all these fossil fuels around uh, to, to power and run your organizations, you, you know it's a huge vulnerability. I will translate this to another anecdotal story. When I was the commanding general at Paris Island, and Paris Island is indeed an island. The only way you get there is by an isthmus or a causeway that goes there. Uh, and that's where the power line comes across, entirely dependent on the local grid for power. 
And if we had a severe thunderstorm, of which they get several during the summer, uh, the power would go out. We'd shut down the base. During the, in the heat of the summer, you've probably got 8,000 or 9,000 recruits on that base. Uh, you, you can't just shut down operations. Our backup was an oil-fired power plant that was built in World War II. Uh, and I was telling folks earlier, if you've driven on Paris Island, you see these old steam lines running all over the base, up above the base. Uh, I mean, the old, antiquated, a huge vulnerability. Uh, I would have gone crazy to have a small modular reactor that powered that base and kept us going on my own without dependence on the, on the local grid. Uh, and as you're probably familiar, there are a number of initiatives with the Department of Defense for go to net zero, meaning bases that would uh, produce more power than they consume, and some are on the way to do that. Um, in my opinion, one of the easiest ways to do that is the small modular reactors. If you had them at all these bases, what, what uh, an advantage it would have to those base commanders. Uh, so the logistical side of it is, is phenomenal. We at the American Security Project are, are pro-nuclear power. And, and I mentioned earlier that we're, we're anti-nuclear weapons. I won't get into that today. We were, we were big on the New START Treaty and that whole business. But nuke power is a whole different story. And, and we are also pro-fusion. If you follow the fusion thing, the wrap on fusion, of course, as they've been saying for 30 years, it's 30 years away. Whereas the technology on nuclear power is here today and it's proven. It can be done. In small modular reactors, the designs are there. The funding is not. And if you, if you had the funding to, to get them established, and I know there are programs with the Department of Defense today that need to be pushed on the Hill to help subsidize these programs and give our commanders in the field the uh, advantages that you would have for nuclear power on your bases and stations. Uh, they, they need it desperately. And like I said, I know that technology is there, unlike fusion, which, again, we're fusion proponents, but that, yeah, and that's not yeah, here yet. Yeah. Uh, nuke power is here today, and we've been doing it. The Navy has been doing it for 60 or 70 years, all, all the way along the time. Today, we are so dependent on energy. You would think, I mean, the military is going more and more to electric vehicles. Uh, you look at aircraft carriers now that are talking about having electric catapults. Uh, everything is leaning towards the electric side of the house and getting away from the fossil fuel side. So uh, all our targeting, when I was an artillery battalion commander, all your commands that went down to the batteries are done over communication links. All your uh, computing was done on computers. You all had the power for that. And if that power went out, you went back to manual. And literally still today at Fort Sill, which is the Army's basic artillery school, the backup is you learn how to manually compute all your data, which takes forever. <laughs> and, and it's a tremendous disadvantage. And, but they're told if your power goes out, you better be able to do it on your own without having to depend on a power source. Uh, which is smart, but ultimately it's not the solution to this problem. So I, I, I know where people come from talking about nuclear power, but I think today when you get around to it and you look at the percentage of power provided in the United States by nuclear power and worldwide and their safety record, and again, when I talked about the original three there, everybody goes back to that. Uh, I can tell you there have been far more deaths associated with coal mining and coal-fired power plants than there ever have in the nuclear industry. Uh, but, but people tend to brush over that statistic uh, and need to get back on the nuclear side. So uh, I, I know there are solutions to this. I, I was glad to hear the congressman up here uh, talk about it. We've got support on the Hill. There is legislation pending. I know there are initiatives within the Department of Defense that we need to push, that we need to get going, uh, that we need to shove downstream and at least get them off the dime, give our commanders the flexibility that they'll have and the dependent independence that they would have for a small modular reactor. So with that, I'll flip it back to you, yeah, Andrew. Thank you, thank you Steve. And, and you know, uh, we'll kind of have a little conversation here and, uh, and until uh, Caroline comes, and uh, then she can jump right in, and we can open up for, for questions, too, if we, if we get to there. Um, so I want to talk a, a couple of sort of definitions that you hear uh, bumped around within the Pentagon. Uh, so there's energy security and energy resilience. And obviously, they're, they're two, uh, two sides of the same coin, right? Um, but if you think about it, so energy security is what, what they say, having assured access to reliable supplies of energy and the ability to protect and deliver sufficient energy to meet mission essential requirements. On the other side, energy resilience is the ability to avoid, prepare for, minimize, adapt to, and recover from anticipated and unanticipated en energy disruptions. Um, 
the way that works kind of in, in practice is uh, energy security is more towards the battlefield. Have, being able to have the, the power you need at the battlefield in order to deploy your force, you know, kind of be um, un, unleash us from the tether of fuel that, that you mentioned. Uh, but the energy resilience then is the ability to bounce back from either uh, an attack or a other unanticipated storm, uh, something like that. Uh, and so that, that kind of tends towards the more installation side. Um, and, you know, when we talk about the offsets and the, the increased technologies and, and everything like that the military is using, um, Resilience is incredibly important because all of these things run on, on a huge amount of power. Uh, there is, uh, you know, think about our, our missile defense systems that, that the Air Force uses. Uh, these things have to always be on, right? Uh, because a missile's only up for a little while. Uh, and so it all, the radars, missile defense ha have to always be on. And you'd think, I think it's pretty clear that should there be any sort of um, attack from North Korea, Iran, other sorts of, in, in terms of ballistic missiles, it would be preceded by some sort of asymmetric attack, right? So whether it's a, a cyber attack or um, EMP burst or, or something that would knock out your power systems. Um, and the idea with energy resilience here is that a, uh, a stationary nuclear power plant, micro-nuclear power plant, would be separated from the grid, would be separated from cyber attacks, would be resilient against these sorts of things. Uh, it, it wouldn't be a question of getting it back on. It would be just a, a question of it, it wouldn't go off. So that there's, there's this, and then, then the other side is on the energy security is about getting the power plants to the to the base, uh, or getting getting it to the fight. Can you, and I, I think it's really interesting that you know the, the design that the Pentagon has talked about uh, is to be able to put a nuclear power plant inside of a standard shipping container. So that means you can put it on a ship, put it on a rail, put it on an airplane. And that is, uh, I understand that's quite a, quite a challenge for uh, design purposes. These things are have to be pretty resilient, pretty pretty built up to be able to uh, to withstand shocks from you know landing on an airplane and, and uh, being jostled around on a on a rail car. Uh, so it's it's an important design challenge, but I think it's really critical and important that the DoD is is actually working on this, is pushing industry to work on this. I thought uh, Representative Lamb had a, a good good way to think about this, that th this is all of these things. When we think about energy, when, when we think of technology development, it is federal investment, federal dollars that go into there and how, uh, how that has driven a lot of the investment that then is, is taken and commercialized from there. So, uh, you know, this, this idea of, of Resilience versus security, I think, is important, and, and it really is kind of two nuclear programs that, that they're looking at. Uh, there's the resilience side is maybe more towards Air Force operations, that sort of stuff, space operations, but not exclusively. And the, uh, the mobile side is more towards uh, expeditionary operations, so Marines or uh, especially Army is, is the one that's, that's looking towards it. Andrew. Uh, you talk about dependency on local grid and what a vulnerability that is for our bases and stations. Just look at last week when they shut down the power outside of San Francisco. Yeah. If they did that outside of Camp Pendleton, shut down Camp Pendleton, you'd have to shut down that base. Yeah. And they've had, uh, we've always had forest fires or range fires at Camp Pendleton, but not like they've had in the last couple of years. Um, so my point to this is the dependence on the local grid is, is becoming worse. And we all know the infrastructure story, and Congress needs to help us on the infrastructure side of the house. But that's not being solved immediately, um, whereas our bases and stations are still vulnerable. So the, having the independence of having your own power source is so much better than depending on, on the local community on, mm -hmm. on the power side of the house. And again, we've got, if not hundreds, maybe thousands of military bases throughout this country and all over the world that we could power with this type of source. Mm -hmm. um, 
without having to depend on the local grid. So uh, again, the, the advantages that it offers on, on the base and station side of the house is a plus. A lot of times when I talk at, at ASP about climate change and, and the, in terms of vulnerabilities, I talk strategic and what's going on worldwide, and then I talk tactical about bases and stations here in the United States. It's not dissimilar to this argument either. When you talk strategic and our dependency on fossil fuels worldwide, mm -hmm. which is a huge vulnerability, then bring it back to our bases and stations that are here in the continental United States, um, you definitely need a secure and reliable power source. And to me, the, right now, the only answer is a small modular reactor. Yeah, yeah, small. It's, it's a next generation nuclear reactor. Um, while, while we're waiting for Caroline to come, I, I can open it up to questions and, and comments from the audience. Um, when you do, I think we do have a, a microphone that'll come around, so please wait for that. We are, we are filming this. Uh, please identify yourself uh, when, you, when you ask a question, and then, then we'll, uh, we'll see what we can do to answer it. But I think I see ma'am in the back there. Uh, Hi, Sharon Squassoni from George Washington University. Um, I think it's important to distinguish between reactors that might support domestic U.S. bases, mm -hmm. where I understand it's actually the grid issue. It's not really uh, transmission and distribution. But in terms right. of foreign bases, mm -hmm. how do you square two big issues? One is getting foreign countries to either had a um, square this with their regulations or getting permission to transport these micro-reactors, which I guess you're going to be transporting them fuel. Um, and the other is, how do you square this with the te technology advances of high-precision targeting? So these, you know, it's one thing to have fuel supplies blown up. It's another thing to have reactors blown up. Uh, exactly right. Uh, two two important challenges, uh, and so so the first is that you have to start um, should start figuring out right away uh, to to have State Department involved in um, engaging and talking to the local partners, places where you might put these, um, because yeah, you know it it is certainly a a thing that you have to, have to be aware of. But at the same time, uh, our nuclear navy does go all around the world, go to port calls all around the world, uh, and it is uh, the, the same sort of issue. So uh, you do have to, have to be aware of this. You should be engaging. You should be working on that, uh, and, and that's important. It's a, on your, your question of targeting. Um, so yes. Uh, this is something that, that has to be uh, has to be looked at and has we have to be aware of. Um, the, the DoD anticipates that these microreactors would be fueled by this new fuel source called TRISO, tristructural isotope, isotopic particle. Um, so with that, the, f the fuel would be fabricated inside these these small kernels uh, that uh, encapsulated with carbon and ceramics. Uh, and uh, the idea is that this, this triso fuel is resistant to meltdown, ability to, to withstand extreme temperatures, uh, and uh, it should be, should minimize the release of fissile or irradiated material from battle damage. Uh, and so it needs to be tested. Uh, these things are, are important, needs to be tested. These, are, these do need to be protected. It's, it's a, a part of the, the DOD's um, uh, their uh, request for information and request for proposal is a plan for testing of these. Uh, so, so it is something to, to think about and something to worry about. It, it's not you have to be aware of these and you have to have to look at it. I am pretty confident that you can do these uh, without uh, without a. Uh, radiating the battlefield but I'm sure it's a great question and, and that's why I talked about strategic and tactical and then continental United States um, I don't envision pulling around 100 small modular reactors within 20 miles of the fort edge of the battle area um, I, I think what I do envision for instance though is having one for instance at, at Al Adid Air Base in, in Qatar 
where you're protected and you know you can protect it. It's land, it's stationary. Um, we can put up enough uh, guard around them, whereas hauling, hauling them to the front line in Syria, for instance, is not something I would, I would envision here. I just, I just don't see it. Um, and, I, and my other, the example of the Navy, you know, the Navy more than seriously protects its submarines and ships. I mean, they go out with a task force that's hundreds of miles wide, and uh, you'd have to do something similar to guard such a reactor on land as well. So that would be a distinct vulnerability in the, in the battle area. But here with your permanent bases and stations, it's a different story. You know, you've got permanent forces stationed there, you know, you, and we got major bases throughout Europe and, and the Middle East. Um, you could certainly power them with, with a nuclear small module reactor. Yeah, and you know, when we talk about energy security too and, and the, the vulnerability of supply lines, the you know, we've gotten the message out pretty well that the Army and, and Marine and land forces are, uh, it's, there's a vulnerability of your supply lines. Um, but I don't think the message has gotten out there that, you know, the Navy is going to have similar vulnerabilities in the case of any sort of uh, action with China, for instance. Uh, Guam, Okinawa are, are island bases that will be important parts of, of that. And I think the Chinese have, have very clearly uh, seen you know, our, our troubles with uh, protecting our supply lines on land. And certainly, any fuel supplies or anything like that going into these, uh, these bases during any, any action would be a, a target. So um, you know, I think whatever you can do to reduce your, your energy supply lines in, in that case uh, would, would be important in a way to Certainly, those would be a centralized place that is already heavily protected uh, and uh, you know, would be an ideal place to, to put um, these sorts of centralized power. So, ma'am, right here. Good morning. This is Andrea Janetta with S&P Global Platts. You mentioned uh, the Department of Defense's, I guess it's a request for information from uh, micro-reactor mm -hmm. developers. I'm wondering if you, if uh, Carolyn was here, I'd be asking her, but I'm wondering if you have any sense of when uh, the Defense Department will announce who the two mm -hmm. candidates they've selected are. And, and what the yeah. next step is, because we're all waiting for that. I think it's, pa right, it's, they, it's passed the RFI and gone to an RFP, or, or you, some of you in the audience probably know better than me. Yeah, there you go. So <laughs> a few months. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and you know we're all eagerly anticipating and, and aware of it. it it's an important. Uh, it's, it's incredibly important to have the DOD support, the, the support from SCO here uh, into this uh, because there is research that needs to be done. We shouldn't, we shouldn't think that these are, are ready to deploy tomorrow. These, are, these, are, these require new research and development. Federal government can and should lead on these. Uh, and uh, it's, because it's a national security priority, it's, it's important and uh, appropriate for DOD to push and support on this. So uh, we're, you know, I think, uh, we're eagerly anticipating and, and looking forward to that. We can do one more question. Okay, sir, right here. I'm Joel Federer. I'm with the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Energy, and we fund uh, a couple micro-reactor designs. RPE, sure. Uh, my question for you is, um, obviously, this is a strategic priority for the United States. Sure, it is as well for some of our adversaries. What's your mm -hmm. understanding of what foreign governments are doing in the area of microreactors as they apply to military? Um, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, so, so I noted uh, one of my my hobby areas of, of research is is Arctic, uh, and I noted, and maybe you all did as well, that the Russians floated a um, floating nuclear reactor uh, this summer in the Arctic. They have plans for seven or eight more. Uh, and uh, these things, they say, are for, and, and, and truly are, for uh, resource exploitation, uh, for powering new ports and all that sort of stuff. 
but I'd also note that the Russians have invested heavily in their military uh, bases in the Arctic, and so so similar things like that. So the Russians are there, are building these. Uh, I'd note that uh, when we think about safety issues, uh, the Russian safety uh, standards in uh, in, mil in nuclear reactors are not nearly as good as ours. Their commercial have since since Chernobyl uh, been fine, but you look at some of the hear some of the stories about the uh, Soviet nuclear navy and and how you know basically they treated their Arctic as a dumping ground uh, for a lot of uh, things. What I'd want is for American technology to to take the lead on these and to be the the, the standard globally. Uh, the Chinese uh, have announced plans as well. Uh, they've, uh, they are particularly interested in them for their South China Sea bases, uh, for the, uh, the you know, small rocks that have been turned into larger islands uh, and our, our military bases. They've put them, they've uh, talked about putting up to 20 uh, across their island bases in, in the South China Sea. Uh, again, they're not going to be shy about selling that uh, to their partners uh, and to their uh, you know, around the world. So again, I, I think it's important that uh, the United States takes a lead on this. And uh, and with that, uh, we're very pleased to have Caroline Cochran, uh, COO of Oklo, join us here. Yes. <laughs> I hope uh, hope your trip in was okay and got a little bit of sleep last night. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for having. Me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. And and uh, so we've had a good conversation here about uh, the national security need for uh, micro reactors on on bases and and uh, and deployable around the world. Uh, and we had uh, Representative Connor Lamb come and talk about uh, why this is important for his district in Western Pennsylvania and. Uh, why uh, why it's important that the federal government leads on this. Uh, so I think your thoughts and ideas here on what you all are doing and uh, what you all see as, as potential markets and benefits of your design uh, and um, anything else you want to add would be really a, a valuable addition to the, to the conversation. So Hi. thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And so sorry for the delay. You probably heard I was... Subbed in last minute, flew overnight from California, and then the uh, plane was delayed by an hour and, and so forth. So it all compounded. Um, but I'm really happy to be here today. It was really important to us to be able to speak to this audience. I really appreciate you guys hosting this, this conversation, this very important conversation. Um, I, I wanted to really quickly touch on some of the things that you were talking about just a moment ago. Um, there are other countries currently operating microreactors right now. We talk about it like it's a theoretical thing in the future, but Russia itself is actually operating microreactors in Siberia right now to provide power to small communities. Um, there is a market there, and you're asking, you know, to speak a few words about why we're in this space. We saw that there's a real need in a lot of remote areas, and there are exploding uses of microgrids around the world, not just in developing countries, but even on grids. Um, being from California, it's been interesting to see how we're trying to deal with uh, widespread power outages or forced power outages in, in some cases. Uh, and people are starting to return to trying to have diesel generators at their houses. Um, so we're also on a grid there in California where it's a large grid, but it still costs um, between 20 and 30 cents a kilowatt hour in California for the power at my house and at um, our office. Um, granted, that's retail and so forth, but um, you're already seeing grids um, that are in higher cost areas that are starting to look at how can individual communities are interested in both going carbon free but also reducing their power costs. Um, and to the extent that they can create their own grid, their own pricing, and, and opt into power that they want to see um, being built in their community, that's a real power of looking at nuclear on such a small scale. So. Um, we saw this need um, years ago when we were uh, talking to people both in resource extraction companies as well as um, some Alaskan friends that we ran into and we're talking about it and they were, we were saying, they were talking about how there are places they can't even get power because in some areas in Alaska they're burning nine gallons of diesel to get one gallon of, of diesel to the location in the first place and then of course that's not 
very clean or cheap power um, in those areas. And in some places, they can't even, it's just not even feasible. Um, many areas have to close down during the winter, um, or they are under what we call energy poverty. So it's just too expensive for people to afford their energy. Here in the mainland United States, I think we're more likely to take for granted the cost of power um, here, but there it's a real ongoing concern. So, you know, we saw this market need and decided to develop a microreactor. Um, I don't think we were really using the term microreactor back then, um, but started really developing this. Um, certainly, there's incredible value to, I think, America's security for developing this, not just, I mean, a, the topic of conversation today is more focused, um, it seems like generally on, on use in defense uh, purposes and, and making sure we have energy security on, on bases around the, well, in the United States and around the world. Um, but there is uh, just broadly a sense of America needs to be on the table here. We need to be, I mean, at the table, <laughs> forgive me. Um, we need to be at the table because we can't try to uh, lead in certain areas, whether it's security, nonproliferation, or energy dominance, if we're not even at the table. Um, so we see this constantly. It's kind of an interesting tug and pull between the United States regulator, which wants as much as possible reasonably to be public, and the various agencies in the United States that want to make sure that technology stays within the United States and make sure that it stays private. Uh, so for us as a small company, it's, it's a constant battle, but we see these stakes um, high and, and maybe even getting higher as we go along. Uh, we had, uh, a few months ago, I was at an export controls summit um, where there was someone from the FBI who wouldn't identify himself who was talking about situations they wanted the broader community to be aware of, and it was actually the first time, I guess, the FBI had spoken at such a convention. Um, but you know, they're seeing attacks from China. They're seeing them trying to replicate what we're trying to do, even though we haven't even yet had a market yet. And I think once we do um, start selling microreactors commercially, that kind of threat will, will continue and intensify. Um, so we have international actors that have interest in, in beating us at this stage, and I think there's incredible benefits to the United States if we lead. So that's a little synopsis. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Could you... Uh, I'm curious, and, and I think our audience might be, to, to learn a little bit about the, uh, your idea for the design. What, what does this look like? How, how is it being built? And, and you know, how do you deal with you know, the, the challenges of, of nuclear that we all, all know about? Absolutely. Um, I think generally you can kind of look at nuclear reactor designs, and, and they've on average been on the order of 1,000 megawatts or electric or so, or at least hundreds. Um, and I think a lot of small designs have looked at how can we shrink that down. Um, we try to look at taking small reactors and kind of starting from there. So space reactor kind of history, um, using heat pipes um, and scaling that up for different microgrid needs um, and try to really assess what was the, the key design point to, to place that electricity size at. Um, what we saw these remote communities were really wanting very, very small power, or if they wanted more, they wanted some redundancy. So we tried to stick to stick single, what we call single-digit megawatt electric, so between one and two megawatts electric could kind of be customized for the site. Um, what we're using as far as technology for fuel is based on something that was actually developed in the United States for 30 years, and many even nuclear engineers haven't even heard of this, which is incredible, but for 30 years we operated a research reactor here in the United States using this advanced fuel and in fact, um, the same year as Chernobyl, which you were pointing out, um, they performed tests where they had it at full power, shut off all the cooling, and locked the control rods out of the core so it couldn't shut itself down, and then waited to see what would happen. Um, and it's a little bit of a simplification, but the general physics of this situation was that the metal fuel heats up, it expands, and it shuts down the reaction. So there's kind of this inherent physical characteristic that you can um, take advantage of um, that keeps it safe and is actually incredibly robust and reliable. Um, like I said, it was operated for 30 years. We have loads of data um, on well, around 100,000 fuel pins, and so that's the basis. Um, and so that's the kind of the type of technology we're using. Metal fuel for the fuel and heat pipes to carry the heat out, and then the power conversion side can be kind of plug and play based on the um, well, I think we can 
open up for a couple more questions. We had had a, a couple of questions from the audience as, as you were going, but we can we can open up for for a couple more here, and uh, it, you know, either to me or General Cheney or or to Caroline, uh, and yes, sir, over here. Hi, my name is Steve Tremble. I'm with um, Aviation Week magazine. I'm, I'm not in the nuclear field. Um, but the Air Force has talked about using nuclear reactors as power sources for their agile basing concept, especially out in the Pacific mm -hmm. in remote areas. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've, I've wondered about some of the questions already. But what about nuclear waste? Um, you know, what, what kind of waste do these reactors generate, and how do you treat them? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I as that that will have to be determined. Uh, I I'd note Navy has has a long history of, of uh, once they've their naval reactors are are emptied and fueled, they ship it to uh, Idaho National Lab, and, and it's uh, it goes into a repository there. Um, Caroline, maybe that's that. How how have you all thought about what do you do with the spent fuel? Yeah. Um, so. Going back to what we use as the basis of our technology, that reactor that operated in Idaho for 30 years actually demonstrated reuse of fuel. And that's part, another big part of what makes us excited about this technology is demonstrating recycling used fuel or waste as energy and turning it into energy. So um, there's really interesting papers that you can read about how that was done. It doesn't even require reprocessing in the traditional sense. Um, that you kind of, it's called a melt recast recycle kind of process. So um, in fact, it might be the case that our first core load is a um, recycled fuel from that reactor from 30 years ago. So instead of having it just sit around as waste, we can turn it into energy and demonstrate a new concept. So we're really excited about that. I think one of the things I'm seeing broadly as I speak honestly a fair amount now um, is I think we're getting to this point in environmental consciousness and, and thinking about resources that we have within this country and making the most of them, that we realize everything has waste. Um, I think people are growingly concerned about um, pollution and deaths caused by pollution um, due to different forms of energy. So um, nuclear by far has the lowest carbon footprint and the lowest amount of waste um, per energy produced, right? So granted, there are concerns about the lifetime of waste, and that's why we're excited about being able to reuse the waste and reduce the lifetime significantly. So we're not talking about thousands of years, we're talking about a few hundred years, and it's relatively easy to store it at that point. But what we're really excited about is like, if you think about nuclear power as a fission, fission as a power source, fission, if your life was powered by it, your entire lifetime supply of energy would be, would fit in the palm of your hand. We say about a, a pop can, or Coke can size. Um, so that's your entire lifetime as an American citizen, like using, you know, more than the average world citizen as far as energy. So uh, it's incredibly energy dense, um, around 2 million times more energy dense, you know, give or take uh, different factors, but um, than a fossil fuel or kind of chemical reaction. And so I think that's a really powerful aspect of, of vision, and that's why we're looking at advanced vision technologies that can recycle and um, do a lot of things as far as safety. Yeah, thanks. Important question. <coughs> Go, sir, here. Hi, my name is Edwin Kindler. Uh, I had a question about uh, the kind of physical security of nuclear materials. I know uh, earlier you guys referenced uh, that, uh, you know, being located at a base would have kind of its own kind of security positives and negatives. But you also referenced that uh, our current kind of energy supply lines are targeted yeah. because of their energy supply lines. How do you envision kind of securing energy supply lines for nuclear uh, that may have kind of, you know, even more of a target on them? And then additionally, um, when they're in place, how do you plan on dealing with uh, theft and other issues? Um, I don't know if the, the small modular reactors uh, that are uh, in rush, operating in rush right now, if they've seen any um, issues with that or how they dealt with that? Thank you. Uh, yeah, good question. Uh, so, so let's say, so uh, I think it's important the, the note that kind of the, the problem with a fuel supply is that it's an iterated supply, right? It's a constant stream that you need. 
So you need these these convoys going up. You need these or you know ships. And 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 honestly, this has been a challenge for the military, for the U.S. military, since at least the Civil War. Protecting your supply lines, protecting how you get uh, your your energy from you know your your back to the to the front. I mean, this this was. Uh, you know the the Allied Expeditionary Force in 1944 and 1945. Uh, you know a big issue, uh, and a big reason that you know we were you know, unable to to push into Germany in in 1944 was because Patton's tanks were dependent on this long supply line of fuel. Now it wasn't vulnerable. It wasn't being attacked. There wasn't uh, you know sort of insurgents along there. But it was still a long supply line, and you had to and there even was a, a pipe that they that they built from England across under the channel that that piped fuel, and even that wasn't enough. Uh, you know, it was they they had all these sorts of things to to you know what, what's what's the term the uh, amateurs think about strategy. Professionals think logistics. Professionals think logistics. <clears throat> you know, so it, it's it's that sort of stuff. And but for a nuclear power plant, it's a one time. Right. It's not. It's not like you have to continuously be refueling. It's uh, you know for for the the navy, it's a twenty year uh, lifespan uh, for for those. Now it, it depends on design, but it, I think it's similar ideas for for power plants that that, that are be de being determined here. It's not like they would be continuously refueled. So you'd have to worry about security getting getting the the reactor to the base, but it would be fueled as you go there, and and the the DoD. Um, RFI specifically said the idea would be to, to get it get it there and get it on base and be able to be producing power within three days. So it's this is a, a one-time you know security challenge that you have to have to do to get it there. Uh, but I think you can, you can protect those and think about that. You know, mobility can be uh, an advantage, not just the vulnerability. The fact that you can move it around and, and people don't know where it is and you can and can't, therefore can't target it. So there's there's a, there's an advantage that I talked about my artillery battalion. I mean, we moved we moved every night. I mean, we, we just did it every night all the time. So you with a small modular reactor, if it's, if it's truck size, you could move it all the time. Again, you have to protect it uh, if you're if you're in that area that's uh, got a lot of the threats to it. Um, but again, that can be an advantage versus a disadvantage. Uh, let's go, ma'am, here, and then we'll go back to you. Hi, my name is Rachel Pig from Partnership for Secure America. And I had a question for Ms. Cochran. Um, you mentioned that the spent fuel at the small modular reactors you're advocating for would be recycled. Um, I wanted. Uh, if you could please explain what kind of process that you're advocating for, if this would be uh, closing the fuel cycle or uh, pyroprocessing or what form. I think that needs more clarification. Thank you. Yeah, um, I want to be clear that like we're not um, in our early units trying to make sure to close the fuel cycle exactly. Um, so you would need reprocessing in order to do that. Um, but what we are looking at using is um, recycled fuel from um, stores at Idaho, essentially. I think the interesting thing is, is that can be replicated and done for future floor loads. And I'd be happy to talk more about that as well. Um, but it's been demonstrated, and if you're interested in learning more about what they're doing there, I believe that there's resources out there at the Idaho National Laboratory, and they are ongoingly uh, kind of uh, melt and recasting this, this fuel that was used in a Be our, our last question, so we can let you all go. Hi, Carolyn. This is Andrea Janetta with S&P Global Platts. You, well, we reported that Oklo was planning to file to NRC an application for a combined operating license. I'm wondering by the end of the year. I'm wondering if that is still the plan. Yeah, um, it's. I'm glad you brought up that we're looking to be NRC licensed. Um, so what we are actually doing is, is pursuing a commercial market. Um, so it is actually 
different. We're not pursuing the transportable reactor thing, and I, I don't know if that was made clear before I arrived, but there is an incredible market need for this, and so we've been looking to be NRC licensed, and we're not currently pursuing the transportable reactor uh, thing, although we're interested to see how that uh, goes and have offered to share information with it. Um, but we are, you know, there is certainly need for non-transportable power at bases as well. Right. Well, I think that's a, a good place to end. Uh, we're happy to talk a little bit afterwards if, if you have further questions. But uh, thank you all for your time. And, and yeah, go to our website, americansecurityproject.org. This has all been recorded on YouTube, and we'll, we'll have it up on there afterwards. Uh, and it is Nuclear Science Week, and I know there's a number of other events going on for Nuclear Science Week. I think they'll be up on the Hill this afternoon. So, uh, so please feel free to be uh, involved in that. So thank you all, and, and thanks for joining us.